This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Thanks for listening in today. I'm Joel Hilliker. We could be on the cusp of a leap forward in our understanding of the universe. The James Webb Space Telescope is just a couple weeks away from starting its scientific work. What will it find? What will we learn? In our first segment, we're going to talk about what scientists plan to study and how this could help us to see how the heavens declare the glory of God. Then we'll look at the French elections this past Sunday where President Emmanuel Macron lost his majority in the National Assembly. This is a disastrous result for Macron, who has been trying to position himself as the leader of all Europe. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Richard Palmer about this. Then a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic, who recently spent time in the Czech Republic. He'll talk to us about how Russia's war in Ukraine is reshaping Eastern Europe. Countries that until recently were neutral or even supportive of Russia now driving hard into the arms of the European Union, which is a very prophetic development. And I'll finish the program today with a bit of reminiscing about Father's Day this past Sunday and a reminder of just how important it is to be a dad. Let's start now by looking at what the James Webb Space Telescope might teach us about the universe. It's been six months since this impossibly complex scientific instrument launched from Kourou, French Guyana. Eric Smith, who was the Webb program scientist and chief scientist for NASA's astrophysics division, he said, when you see Webb go into space, it's a whole force of human creativity and all kinds of disciplines that push it there. And everything has gone practically perfectly as this telescope has traveled to its home in space a million miles from Earth. It's unfolded just as expected. Everything has been calibrated to a precision we can hardly grasp. There are 18 hexagonal segments in the telescope's gold-plated mirror, and the motors on these mirrors can nudge the segments, individual segments, in increments one ten-thousandth the width of a hair. That's how precise the calibration is on that mirror. And the test pictures we've received so far have had spectacular clarity. On July 12th, the first full-color images will be released from James Webb. Now, what is this telescope going to study? Well, it's going to study a lot of things. The senior project scientist, Dr. John Mather, said, We are opening the infrared treasure chest, and surprises are guaranteed. Now, there are 8,760 hours in a year, and... What they're doing is they're awarding various scientific groups a specific number of hours to devote to the projects that they're interested in. More than 2,000 groups submitted proposals for how to use the telescope during its first cycle. And the Time Allocation Committee, which is made up of over 200 scientists, they selected 266 
of these projects that the uh, that the telescope will undertake during this first cycle. They're very particular about each of these projects. They're trying to maximize the scientific returns from this telescope. And some of the early projects that it will undertake will uncover information that will be useful to later projects. There are three categories of projects that they're undertaking. There's the early release science, which is going to help educate the scientific community on the telescope's instruments and its capabilities. There's the general observer programs, which that's the main category, and then the guaranteed time observation for scientists who helped build the telescope. The general observer projects are split into several subcategories. Scientific American says 32% for galaxies, 23% for exoplanets, 12% for stellar physics, and so on, down to 6% dedicated to our own solar system. Within those categories, there are small programs, 25 hours or less of observation time, medium programs, more than 25 to 75 hours, and large programs, more than 75 hours. Now, I want to focus on two major collections of studies that this telescope will undertake. One of them looks into the past, and the other looks into the future. Firstly, scientists are very excited to look further back in time than ever before. This is probably the grandest overall purpose of the James Webb Space Telescope, to shed light on the beginning of the universe. A telescope like this is a kind of time machine because it is seeing light that left its source sometimes billions of years ago. The Hubble telescope explored deeper into antiquity than we've ever seen. And what scientists realize is that galaxies have existed as far back as we can see, much further than they expected. You've probably seen the, the picture called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. That's where scientists, they believe some of these little smudges of light in that image originated about 500 million years after the birth of the universe. So they believe that the structure of the universe as we now know it had to have started forming probably hundreds of millions of years before that. And the light from those objects has stretched out and redshifted too far for Hubble to see. Now the James Webb Space Telescope has infrared sensors that enable it to see considerably beyond those Hubble Ultra Deep Field images. Astrophysicist Blake Bullock said Hubble, when pushed to its maximum, could see galaxies that were teenagers in terms of age. We want to see babies. With the web, we'll be able to see back in time to the earliest objects in the universe for the first time. So we're going to be getting baby pictures of the universe from the James Webb Space Telescope. Astrophysicist Amber Strawn said this on 60 Minutes. It's like we have this 14 billion year old story of the universe, but we're missing that first chapter. And Webb was specifically designed to allow us to see those very first galaxies that formed. Now, the, the largest single project that was awarded time on the telescope is going to look at thousands of the earliest galaxies 
this is going to help us better understand the period from about 400,000 years to about 1 billion years after creation, over 13 and a half billion years ago. Now, this is exciting because to this point, the more that science learns about the origins of the universe, the more obvious and irrefutable it becomes that it had to be created. The deeper our instruments enable us to peer into deep space, the clearer it is that there had to have been a creation event that gave birth to the universe. Now, there are scientists who are really uncomfortable with that, and they're going to do all they can to try to explain whatever James Webb finds in purely materialistic evolutionary terms. But there are many scientists who are coming around to the reality of their being design and intent in the universe. And I believe most of them are looking at James Webb as a sincere, good faith effort simply to get to the truth. They're not necessarily without bias, but they're willing to look at the data and see what does this teach us. There's a wonderful article in Quanta magazine by Natalie Wolchover. Uh, it actually received a Pulitzer Prize, this, this article, a Pulitzer for Explanatory Reporting. And the title of it is, The Webb Space Telescope Will Rewrite Cosmic History If It Works. And she talks about a University of Arizona professor, Marsha Rieke, who uh, she's a pioneer in infrared astronomy. She helped design one of the four main instruments on the James Webb Space Telescope, the Near Infrared Camera, or NearCam. And this is what this article says. She and her team at Arizona are planning to use more than half of their whopping 900 hours of guaranteed telescope time to do a new deep field survey, one that will peer deeper into the past than ever before. Whereas Hubble could see the faint smudges of galaxies at redshift 10, corresponding to 500 million years after the Big Bang, Webb should be able to see those smudges very clearly and spot brand new galaxies germinating farther away, perhaps as far back as 50 or 100 million years after the Big Bang. Now, they use the term Big Bang to describe the creation event that gave birth to the material universe. But she says, Riki and her team will do one better than the Hubble Deep Field. After using NearCam to get an image of their dark patch of the sky, they'll identify the galaxies in that patch that are farthest away and use NearSpec, Webb's near-infrared spectrograph, to take the galaxy's spectra, from which Riki and her colleagues can deduce their chemical compositions. So this is interesting because it's going to teach us a lot about the composition of the universe in those early stages and help us understand mysteries like dark matter. Uh, it's going to help us to understand how black holes ended up at the center of galaxies. We read in Romans 1 and verse 20 that if we study the visible things, if we study God's handiwork, then we're going to learn things about the invisible things. We'll gain appreciation for his eternal power. We, we, we'll even learn about his divinity. We're going to see that there had to be a great God behind this. There's absolutely no other way that all of this could have come together. And with 
this telescope and with the instruments that we have here, it just becomes more and more obvious. The more we learn, the more impressive it becomes. And that verse, Romans 1.20, it, it ends by saying they are without excuse. Of course, there are many atheistic scientists who just won't accept the truth that's staring them in the face. Despite all the evidence, they, they just refuse to recognize God. And so they'll devise one theory after another so they don't have to acknowledge God. And they come up with some pretty outlandish theories. But I'm very confident that the evidence that we gain from the James Webb Space Telescope is going to help all humanity see more clearly than ever that God is creator. And those unbiased scientists who will just accept what the data and the evidence tell us, they're going to come to understand aspects of this that really will illuminate this exciting history and show God's power. We're about to see images of when God first created the universe. We have a booklet called Our Awesome Universe Potential that has a chapter that is called Did It All Start With a Big Bang? That's about this very subject. And it shows how science is increasingly aligning with the description of creation in the Bible and pointing to the handiwork of God. So that is what we can be watching for as the science emerges from James Webb in the weeks ahead regarding the past. Now, the science that points us to the future regards what this telescope will teach us about other planets. Exoplanets is a quite a new field of study. It's a whole lot easier to see stars and galaxies out there. You can't really see things very well that don't glow. You can only see fluctuations in the light emitted from a star around which a planet orbits. When the planet passes in front of it, or it's on the other side of it and it's reflecting the light back to us, then there's fluctuations in the light produced by that star. It's actually quite ingenious the way that scientists have figured this out in the last 30 years. And they've found more than 4,500 exoplanets so far. And it's enough to get an idea of just how rare the planets in our solar system are, especially Earth, with its singularly spectacular combination of factors that enable life. But James Webb has instrumentation that will enable us to get clearer views than ever of what is going on on these other planets. It will enable us to detect the atmospheric composition and the climates of these other planets. This is from that Quanta Magazine article. Every kind of molecule has characteristic wavelengths that it absorbs. So by collecting light from a star when a planet is and isn't transitioning in front of it and checking which wavelengths of starlight grow dimmer when the planet is there, you can see which molecules are present in the planet's sky. Existing telescopes have already spotted molecular fingerprints in the skies of hot Jupiters. Now, that's talking about like huge, huge planets that are actually very close to their stars. Uh, but it says these are lifeless planets. Detecting the weaker signals from rocky, possibly habitable planet skies will require James Webb Space Telescope. Not only will the telescope have close to 100 times Hubble's resolution, 
but it will see exoplanets far more clearly against the background of their host stars since planets emit more infrared than optical light while stars emit less. Importantly, Webb's view of exoplanets won't be obscured by clouds, which often prevent optical telescopes from seeing the densest low altitude layers of atmosphere. So dozens of scientific programs that will take Webb's time are going to look at planets, including many specific planets we've already discovered that are of particular interest. Planets that exist in what are called the habitable zones of other stars at a distance where you could have liquid water and conditions would be most suitable for the presence of life. Quanta talks about the the most extensive of these studies in the first cycle. It says it's a 142-hour survey of super-Earths and sub-Neptunes, the ubiquitous mid-size bridge planets that our solar system lacks and whose composition, habitability, and formation history are unknown. There are actually five different programs that are going to study what's called the TRAPPIST-1 planetary system what Scientific American calls a system 40 light years from Earth that is thought to comprise seven Earth-sized worlds orbiting a single red dwarf star. And we'll be able to see if these planets have atmosphere, if they have oceans, what sort of chemical elements exist on these planets. Now, the scientists who are studying this, they're looking, as they always do, for the presence of life on these planets. They'll use a technique called transmission spectroscopy, which will enable them to look for what they call biosignature gases, evidence that there is life on those planets that's breathing carbon dioxide or it's photosynthesizing out oxygen. Now, the Bible reveals that Earth is the only place with life in the universe. So they are not going to find what they're looking for. But the Bible does reveal something extremely exciting. And this is explained in our awesome universe potential in the chapter, Why the Universe. Several scriptures show that God did not make the universe in vain, but he has plans to bring life to those planets in the future. Read Romans 8 which talks about this. Herbert W. Armstrong explained it in his book, The Incredible Human Potential. He says, This passage indicates precisely what all astronomers and scientific evidence indicates. The suns are as balls of fire giving out light and heat, but the planets, except for this earth, are in a state of death, decay, and futility, but not forever, waiting until converted humans are born the children of God, put together all these scriptures I've used in this chapter, and you begin to grasp the incredible human potential. Our potential is to be born into the God family, receiving total power. We are to be given jurisdiction over the entire universe. What are we going to do then? These scriptures indicate we shall impart life to billions and billions of dead planets as life has been imparted to this earth, we shall create as God directs and instructs. So through the Bible, God has revealed the understanding that there are other planets out there, surely billions of them, that sometime in the future, his family is going to beautify and populate. 
I am certain that the James Webb Space Telescope will be teaching us about some of these specific planets. They don't have life on them yet, but the conditions are there, just like they were on Earth. All the elements are in place. The variables, the factors are favorable for life, and they are ready for some kind of Genesis 1 type recreation event that introduces life. We'll see, but I, I would not be surprised at all if discoveries from James Webb gave us a much more vivid vision of this inspiring future. These are just two of the exciting areas of study that James Webb will be focusing on and revealing more about in the weeks and the months and hopefully years ahead of us. Just in the first cycle of its use are many more exciting specific projects that will teach us about our universe. There are specific projects aimed at studying the properties of our solar system, better understanding the large scale structure of the universe, stellar physics and stellar types, supermassive black holes. There are 266 specific projects being allocated time with this telescope, every one of which is studying some aspect of God's handiwork and promises to help us better understand his creation. So keep your eyes on what we'll be learning. Quantum Magazine talks about an astrophysicist, Grant Tremblay, uh, at Harvard University, who served on the telescope's time allocation committee. He said, it's going to do amazing things. We'll be in the New York Times talking about how this is witnessing the birth of stars at the edge of time. This is one of the earliest galaxies. This is the story of other Earths. And world events continue to hurtle toward the violent climax of man's rule on earth and hopelessness and despair are growing all the time. I believe God is going to use these scientific discoveries to continue to expand our understanding and challenge our imaginations and amplify our vision. The voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The man who has been trying to position himself as the leader of all Europe received a big blow in elections this past Sunday. We'll hear some takeaways about the political picture in France in this report from Richard Palmer. The final round of France's parliamentary elections yesterday were disastrous for French President Emmanuel Macron. He clearly wants to be the strong man of Europe, yet now he's in a weaker position than any president in the history of France's Fifth Republic. Macron's ensemble coalition won only 245 seats, with 289 necessary for a majority. This is the first time in the history of the Fifth Republic that the president has failed to win a majority in parliament. Le Mans called it a nightmare scenario and a stunning blow. The ambitious president could now find himself a lame duck, unable to get any of his plans past Parliament. It's going to be very hard for Macron to find any kind of workable coalition. He's been hit by the same political disease that has afflicted the rest of Europe, the rise of the fringe. 
A group called NUPES, or N-U-P-E-S, which stands in French for the New Ecological and Social Popular Union, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, came second in the election. Now, this was a temporary electoral alliance of communist and green parties. They will not necessarily sit in parliament for the long term as one party. But they want to see the government take over French banks, energy and other strategic industries. They want to see the government lower the retirement age and hand out free money to those under 25. They want the government to cap prices and rents. And they want the French to work less. They believe that laws making it illegal for people to work more than 35 hours a week are themselves too weak. For some sectors, they want to cut that to 32 hours, and they want all workers to be legally obliged to take six weeks paid holiday, up from the current five weeks. So this is not a group that's going to be easy for a president struggling to control a dangerously high level of debt to do business with. But even more impressive has been the rise of Marine Le Pen's national rally, going from just eight seats in the last election to 89. Le Pen's party is often characterized as far right. They use authoritarian and nationalistic rhetoric, but many of their economic policies are far left. They're not going to be easy for Macron to work with either. If anything, France's parliament now has a majority of left and right wing Eurosceptics who want to spend a lot of money. Meanwhile, Emmanuel Macron wants to bring Europe closer together and get France's finances under better control. It's hard to see how he's going to be able to do any of this with this parliament. He may be able to persuade enough from other parties to support him on specific issues, but they're going to extract a high price for that. John Miller, the spectator, wrote that Macron is now doomed to preside over escalating chaos as France faces a cost-of-living crisis and debt crisis, a budget deficit untamed by Europe's highest taxes, an energy crisis, crisis in the schools and hospitals, and a law and order crisis, all amidst the most serious European military conflict since 1945. This political fracturing has paralyzed many other countries across Europe, including Germany. The rise of the far left and the far right again and again mean that the centralist parties lack majorities to get anything done. And then this paralysis feeds even more into this discontent with politics and the further rise of the fringe. Until this election, Macron looked like the strongest and most secure leader in Europe. Italy has an unwieldy coalition, with some worried that it could even fall this week, with members increasingly disagreeing on sending weapons to Ukraine. Germany's leader is new, still finding his feet and increasingly unpopular at home. Macron has been kind of the main mover and shaker, pushing ambitious new plans for a United States of Europe, clearly in the hope and belief that he would lead that United States. But with Macron a lame duck, Europe's leadership void is about to become more acute than ever. Perhaps European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen or Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi will try to fill that role of Mr. Europe, But neither are going to be able to do so as convincingly as Macron. And Macron wasn't all that convincing in the job anyway. The alternative is for Mr. Macron to sail further into uncharted territories and to try and find a way to rule more autocratically, dispensing with the usual restrictions of parliament and democracy. That would be a radical step, but in these post-COVID days, we certainly can't rule that out. Either way, though, it is a new chapter for France and it's a new chapter for Europe. More autocracy or potentially no leadership 
while crises engulf the region. Europe is facing an economic crisis. High inflation is now reopening the old wounds exposed by the euro crisis 10 years ago. Italy or even France itself could find themselves unable to pay their debts as interest rates rise. And at the same time, Europe faces a military crisis. America's retreat from Afghanistan has proved to European leaders that they cannot trust the United States to defend them. And now they're facing a war in their continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In December, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote that Europeans are facing great crises, including economic instability, terrorism and illegal immigration, rising threats from Asia. In times of crisis, people are less concerned about democratic norms. They need strong leadership. That has to come from Germany, which dominates and even domineers Europe today. It is the powerhouse. In the end, ten kings will give their military might to one man and will form a superpower that will shock the world. We believe there will be one supreme king over ten kings. There is a slight possibility there could be just ten kings total and that leadership would come out of Germany. But whether this prophesied ruler will hold a position in Germany or not, he will rule Germany and the rest of this European conglomerate. Now, this new chapter in Macron's presidency seems set to make that happen. Either Macron helped lead Europe into autocracy, or the leadership void becomes even clearer, and Europe works harder than ever to fill it. Mr. Flurry continued, Europe's present leadership void creates an opening. Even though European states vote their leaders in, they could agree to have one man rule over them all and give all of their military might, even France's nuclear bombs, to that overarching power. Suddenly, there would not only be a superpower, but also a nuclear superpower with nuclear submarines. Many biblical prophecies warn us to watch for a strong man ruling over Europe. Several scriptures in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 10, tell us this strong leader is going to come from Assyria, Germany in modern-day Bible prophecy. Revelation 17 tells us there will be 10 kings in this coming European power. So France will likely provide one of those kings, but the overall leader will not be French. Watch for the results of France's parliamentary elections to bring us closer to this strong German leader. To learn more about what the Bible prophesies for Europe's leadership in the near future, read Mr. Flurry's article, Europe is About to be Hijacked. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Russia's war on Ukraine has put Eastern European nations on high alert and driven them into the arms of the European Union. We'll hear about this in a report from a man who recently spent time in the Czech Republic, Mihailo Zekic. Huddled amid centuries-old churches and frilly, turn-of-the-century apartments lies Prague's old Jewish district. Unassuming from the exterior, Prague's six historic synagogues, some hundreds of years old, have beautifully ornate interiors. Exhibitions inside some of them show the splendid wealth of Prague's old Jewish community, including beautiful silverworks, fine portraits, and exquisite jewelry. Prague's Jewish community was thriving. But few people come to the synagogues to worship now. In fact, most of the synagogues have been converted into museums. Only two still function as active synagogues. The land that is today the Czech Republic was once home to tens of thousands of Jews. But the Nazis, after taking over what was then Czechoslovakia, 
wiped them out. One of the synagogues is now a Holocaust memorial. The walls in the otherwise mostly empty building are almost completely covered with the names of 80,000 Jews from the area whom the Nazis murdered. It is estimated the Czech Republic today is home to less than 6,000 Jews. Prague's Jewish district shows that, for countries in Central and Eastern Europe, genocide hits close to home. Genocide is within living memory, a major part of the country's recent history. And reminders of it are there for all to see. But is genocide restricted to Eastern Europe's past? An eight-hour drive east of Prague is the Ukrainian border, and Russia's war in Ukraine is causing many to wonder if genocide is returning to Eastern Europe. More and more headlines from respected news publications are alleging that it will. Many Eastern European governments are taking note. Eastern Europe has different political traditions from the West. Since the fall of communism, the region has embraced conservative governments hostile to traditional liberal causes. Some of Eastern Europe's leaders were also close to Russian President Vladimir Putin before the Ukraine war. All of this alienated Europe's leaders in the East from the so-called Eurocrats in Brussels. But Putin's war in Ukraine, and the reports of genocide he is bringing, is changing all this. Czech President Miloš Zeman is a good example. In office since 2013, he was considered one of Putin's closer friends in Europe. Before the current invasion, he called the war on the Donbass a civil war between two groups of Ukrainian citizens, echoing what the Russian government called the conflict. In 2014, an arms depot in the Czech town of Vrbetice exploded. The Czech government mostly run by the prime minister rather than the president, concluded that Russian military intelligence agents blew up the building. Prime Minister Andrei Babish claimed there was irrefutable evidence against Moscow. But Zeman, meanwhile, tried to downplay Russia's involvement in a televised address. In 2015, about a year after Russia annexed Ukraine's Crimea, Zeman went to Moscow to celebrate Russia's Victory Day Parade. He was the only European Union leader to visit. The Ukraine war has changed all this. Zeman called Putin's actions a crime against peace. On February 24th, the day of the invasion, he called for Russia to be cut off from the swift banking system. It is time to reach for much tougher sanctions than those originally planned by which I mean, above all, a sanction in the area of the so-called SWIFT, he said. He awarded Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky with the Czech Republic's most prestigious award, the Order of the White Lion. Zeman cited Zelensky's courage and bravery for standing up to Russia. He's even called for Putin to face trial for war crimes. Putin's invasion turned one of his closest associates in the EU into a vocal opponent. But the Czech Republic isn't the only country in the region changing sides. So is Poland. Poland has a long history of being trampled on by Russia. So it's no surprise Poland is among the countries most eager to help Ukraine. 
Poland has been generous in supplying Ukraine with weapons. It has also accepted over a million Ukrainian refugees, according to conservative estimates. But the war isn't just driving Warsaw closer to Ukraine. The Polish government has also been getting closer with the EU. Poland has been ruled by the conservative Law and Justice Party for years. Unlike the Czech president, PIS, Law and Justice's acronym in Polish, has little love for Vladimir Putin. Yet the government in Warsaw has been enacting conservative policies that are anathema to the EU's ruling elites. One of the biggest issues revolves around the so-called rule of law controversy. Poland's judiciary previously appointed judges and justices itself. PIS changed the law so that the legislature, currently dominated by conservatives, would nominate judges instead. This has allowed the government to get the court's approval for its conservative agenda, like banning abortion. These kinds of policies have drawn Warsaw into battles with Brussels. For example, last year, the EU suspended Poland's share of the European COVID-19 recovery fund because of this. Brussels has also been fining Warsaw a million euros a day since October for the rule of law issue. That wasn't enough to get Poland to back down. But last month, the Polish government altered some of its controversial judicial reforms. Earlier this month, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced plans to remove Poland's COVID recovery fund suspension. The issue still isn't completely settled. Poland has also announced it's ready to move forward with the EU's global minimum corporate tax scheme. Last year, 136 countries at an Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, meeting agreed to a global minimum corporate tax of 15%. Poland, however, disagreed with the scheme. Warsaw's veto prevented the EU's adoption of the proposal. But Poland is now apparently ready to move forward and adopt the proposals. The timing of Poland's recent changes and Brussels' rapprochement is interesting. It looks like Poland is trying to get on Europe's good side amid the tensions with Russia. Not all of Eastern Europe's leaders are making these kinds of turnarounds. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban is a notable exception. But much of Eastern Europe has been in what seems like a perpetual squabble with Brussels. The Ukraine war is causing much of this to melt away. Jean Monnet, one of the EU's so-called founding fathers, said that Europe will be forged in crisis and will be the sum of the solutions adopted for those crises. Before Ukraine, Europe looked like it would be divided into two camps, a conservative, populist East and a liberal, progressive West. But then came the crisis in Ukraine. Nothing short of Russian tanks and bombs could unite Eastern and Western Europe. But no matter how extreme the catalyst is, it is working. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury wrote the following, quote, The move shocked the world. Most of all, it shocked Europe. In a stroke, Russian President Vladimir Putin redrew Ukraine's borders. He continues, Russia succeeded in swallowing another nation's sovereign territory, and the world 
did almost nothing. This terrifies Eastern Europeans. It is a kind of action that many assumed had ended forever once the Soviet Union fell. Mr. Fleury wrote this about Russian actions in Ukraine, but it's not about the current war. He wrote this in 2014 when Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula in his article, The Crimean Crisis is Reshaping Europe. Yet even though the article is about eight years old now, with Putin's current actions in Ukraine, it is timelier than ever. Mr. Fleury continued, We have been prophesying for around 70 years that Eastern Europe would become a vital part of a new European superpower, a resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. This prophecy is directly related to the Crimean crisis. The fear you see in Europe because of events in Crimea is going to cause 10 leaders in Europe to unite in a sudden and dramatic way. And in precise accordance with the Bible's description of that European empire. Further down, he writes, The reaction within Europe to this crisis is something you need to watch because it is shaping and molding the future composition of the Holy Roman Empire. It is making European leaders move urgently to tie together this Holy Roman Empire that we have been prophesying about for so many years. The trumpet bases its European analysis on several biblical prophecies. Revelation 13 speaks of a beast, a biblical symbol for an empire. The chapter shows the beast has great authority and an unstoppable military. It has a history of persecuting true Christians, and it has power over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Biblical and secular history show this to be the Roman Empire. Rome fell centuries ago, but a related prophecy in Revelation 17 shows this isn't only about ancient history. Revelation 17, like chapter 13, is about a beast. But unlike the previous beast, this one is ridden by a woman, a biblical symbol for a church. This beast has seven heads, a symbol for seven kings of this empire. This is a prophecy of seven resurrections of the Roman Empire, each time presided over by an influential church. History shows that six of these resurrections have come and gone. The last one was fulfilled by Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. That means there is one more yet to come. The Bible reveals that the last resurrection will be composed of ten independent nations combining their power into one superstate. You can read that in Revelation 17, verses 12 to 14. Other pertinent prophecies, like Daniel 2, verses 42 to 44, show that these ten kings would have iron and clay unity. It's going to take a lot to bring these nations together. As the past few months demonstrate, it even takes a major war on Europe's eastern border. But once this unity takes place, the Bible prophesies that this new Europe will shake the world. This last resurrection will include victims of the sixth resurrection. This is why 
the trumpet watches what happens in countries like the Czech Republic and Poland. The exact identities of these ten kings isn't necessarily known yet, but current events in places like Prague and Warsaw are certainly noteworthy. To learn more, please read The Crimean Crisis is Reshaping Europe and request a free copy of Who or What is the Prophetic Beast by the late theologian Herbert W. Armstrong. You can find both at thetrumpet.com. It's time for today's Last Word. Forgive me, but I'm still thinking about Father's Day. This is an exceedingly good tradition. It slips by too quickly. We need to linger on it a bit longer. Among the things I appreciate about Father's Day is the fact that newspapers that are regularly filled with head-shakingly bad news of our day, they all take a moment to feature articles highlighting something not just positive, but also very important, the latest research on the high value of fathers. Take a Wall Street Journal article. This is actually from a few years ago, but it cites several academic sources, and it says that father's, quote, distinct style of parenting is particularly worth recognition. The way dads tend to interact has long-term benefits for kids independent of those linked to good mothering. And this article details some of the father's tendencies around children, more rambunctious play, blunter correction, a lack of compassion for the child's scrapes and owies. Check, check, and check in my home. But lo and behold, studies show that these inclinations actually put kids at an advantage. Among the benefits, the article says improved cognitive skills, fewer behavioral problems among school-aged children, less delinquency among teenage boys, and fewer psychological problems in young women. It's not that mom's parenting style doesn't work as well, but it's more effective when it's complemented and balanced by dad's approach. I love that. Bravo. Anything that celebrates the family as it was designed is worth applauding in my book. I find it remarkable that even after decades of an aggressive effort to paint dad as irrelevant in the home, the stubborn common sense fact remains that the family is far better off when dad is there and when he's engaged. Liberated women have tried to push them aside. Selfish men have embraced the erroneous self-serving notion that their children don't need them. But time and again, the facts bear out that dad has a central, vital role that he ought not abdicate. How well do you understand how important your role as a father is? Do you know what God requires of you? The role that God put you in as a dad, it's bigger than you are. It's, it's not a prize, it's a tool. And you have to see what God wants to accomplish with it. If you use it the right way, you can really be a blessing in the life of your family, and the lives of your children. I would say that the aspect of fatherhood that is least understood by modern society is the importance of dad being an authority in the life of his children. A father should lead his home with loving leadership. 
Now, that statement, of course, is something that arouses hostility from a lot of intellectuals and politicians and regular folks. And as a result, a lot of men don't know how to properly establish authority in their own household. They haven't seen it done. They hear that it's just evil by its very nature. They're not even sure they should do it because society around them seethes at even the thought of it. You know what? That's a major reason why society is as deeply troubled as it is. As a man, you need to clear your mind of society's erroneous biases and agendas and learn to view parental authority the way the creator of parents and children and family views authority. The fifth commandment says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. Modern child-rearing tends to focus on establishing rapport with children and doing activities together and even building a friendship. Now, if that's your entire approach toward your children, you're going to have serious problems. The foundation of the relationship with your children must include establishing your authority. You must teach your children to respect your office as a father. The fifth commandment establishes God's government in your home. It places parents in authority over children. Now, of course, even though it's specifically directed at children, we parents have to be the ones to train and instruct our children to honor us and then enforce that command. A person who must make sure that that commandment is enforced in your family is you. You have to learn how to administer your authority and do it with affection and warmth and encouragement and instruction and also correction and discipline. These are all facets of God's love and they should all flow from the authority that God has given you as a father. You've got to pray for his help in order to get the balance right. But if you do it the right way, you allow God to bless your family through you. You're using your role as a father in a way that it really is a gift to your family, the way that God intends it to be. Father's Day is a terrific reminder of the beauty and the effectiveness in the design of the family. Forget the father haters. Men, we have a job to do. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Richard Palmer and Mihailo Zekic. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Albert Einstein. Your imagination is your preview of life's coming attractions. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.
been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.